The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We are continuing to explore the life of a man of God who had, at least numerically, and I don't know how you measure somebody's tragedy against another person's, but Job lost ten children and all of his estates and all of his income. And I don't think he was ready yet to sing, It Is Well With My Soul. In fact, I know he wasn't because he sings a rather different song in the scripture we're going to look at today. We've been studying this unusual book of the Old Testament. It's a difficult book, difficult to preach or teach from. It's largely a book of poetry. Today, you may not see this, but the text beginning here in chapter 3 and going on quite a ways is really Hebrew poetry, and that doesn't always come out as well in the English as it would if you were an expert in Hebrew, which I am not any more than you. But uh, I'm going to read today at the end of Job 2, when his friends, the infamous friends, appear, who are going to be a, an important thing in, uh, pretty soon. And then Job himself speaks all of chapter 3, and I will read from 2.11 through chapter 3. Listen to God's holy word. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him, even from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this... Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? 
For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. The thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is God's Word. Many of you are well-versed enough in the modern industry of Star Wars movies that you know the phrase, the dark side of the force. And if you know that, you know that I'm making a play on words when I talk to you today about the dark side of the faith. I was raised in a branch of somewhat legalistic fundamentalism, very conservative church, good church, preached the gospel, but at times a what I call works righteousness of rigid rules was evident there that made a lot of snap decisions about if you did something or did not do certain things, well, that was an evidence of your Christianity. Real Christians in that state of mind and thinking in the 50s and 60s, for example, did not smoke cigarettes and did not drink alcohol and did not go to dances and do a number of other things. And one of the things that troubled me, and I saw evidences of it a few times when I was a teenager, that it almost seemed like real Christians were not allowed to get depressed. I knew of some people who I would know now in my adult understanding were probably suffering from mental illness accompanied by real depression. But the implication towards these people was, well, they just need to get right with the Lord. If they'd just get their eyes on Jesus somehow, they'd be singing and whistling victory in Jesus all day long, and there wouldn't be any problem. It was a spiritual problem, what should have been probably understood as an illness, a mental illness. If there was too much melancholy in your life, they just concluded, well, see the pastor. He'll get you straightened out. Well, that attitude would have written off Job and called him a spiritual failure for sure. And as we find him expressing himself here for the first time at at length and with great emotion in Job chapter 3, he was mourning the day of his own birth. And there would be many that would say, well, I can't see this as a saved man. I can't imagine how this could be a man of faith. 
A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about a figure from history when William Cooper lived, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. William Cooper was a hymn writer. He was a poet of some note. There's actually a window uh, dedicated to him in Westminster Abbey in London. We sing William Cooper's hymns like God Moves in a Mysterious Way or There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Today at the end of the service, we're going to sing one of his hymns, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God. But we know that William Cooper was a man who dealt with very severe mental illness, with deep depression much of his life, and yet he knew Christ as Lord and Savior, but he struggled and struggled to obtain assurance, and there were times when he just felt sure that he was a castaway. The other hymn writer, John Newton, was a friend who encouraged Cooper a great deal. But despite that encouragement and despite evidences of real Christianity, no one could write some of the things he did in his hymns without knowing and understanding the Scriptures well. Uh, Yet Cooper attempted suicide a couple of times. He was in a mental asylum for a while, which in those days was little more than a jail to try to keep you from hurting yourself. We know that William Cooper spoke with appreciation of Psalm 88. If you have no familiarity with Psalm 88, it's your assignment to check out after this message and see a psalm that has absolutely no trace of a happily ever after ending. It's a psalm where the psalmist is struggling very deeply, is very low, he's mourning, And nowhere in the psalm, before you look for it, you hope that it's going to turn in the last verse or something and say something hopeful like, but I put my hope in the Lord. He doesn't even do that. He ends up, I know the NIV translation of the last verse of Psalm 88 is, and darkness is my dearest friend. Now some people would say, what's that doing in the Word of God? It certainly doesn't uplift you at all. But yet we know that the strong pessimism conveyed in a psalm like that and the suffering and depression of a man like William Cooper and the suffering and mournfulness that we see in the life of Job this morning can be that of a real believer. Someone who thinks perhaps they might be forsaken by God and yet is questing and praying. The great thing about Psalm 88 is that the man writing it has not given up completely on God. He's praying. He hasn't broken through to sense the joy of God, but he's praying. He's holding on to the Lord against hope. And you sense that he knows perhaps that God's hold of grace is upon him. Last time we examined Job, we saw the terrible strokes of suffering that were allowed to come in this strange bargain that The evil one was working out and said, let me get my hands on him, God, and I'll make him curse you to your face. Well, he did everything that was possible to do short of killing Job, and Job did not curse God to his face. And by the way, the portrayal of Satan in the book of Job disappears now from this point onward. He's lost. He lost the bet. Satan does not appear in the book of Job from this point Onward, But, of course, the woes and the tragedy that has been brought into the picture is still there and is being worked on and argued over and prayed about. So Job, with all ten children dead, with all of his estates and animals and 
vast wealthy holdings gone from him. The last we heard him say were two statements of faith. In fact, his only speaking before this in 121 and 210 were statements of faith. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Great, Job. You're doing a good job. But now it sounds altogether different. We don't know how long a time has passed, certainly days, more likely weeks, maybe months, that he's had to see all these things churn through his consciousness and through his prayers, and now he's going to give us an interior glimpse of himself. And he's going to speak some things that will probably shock us if we say, this is a believer talking like this. Well, the new factor is, number one, he has friends who are listening, and he's not necessarily talking to them, but he's aware that they're there. And he also, I don't think, is we're not told that this is a prayer to God, where it just says, and Job said. He talked out loud. Who was he talking to? Well, his friends were there. He knew that. And I believe he knew God was there as well and witnessed everything that he said. Let's listen in on the end of Job and, and parts of chapter 3 here to see what God may teach us in just two main points today. First of all, this ending of chapter 2, 11 to 13, where we see three friends on an errand of mercy. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I couldn't help but remember something that I had long forgotten when I was dealing with this passage this week. Former youth pastor of our church, Chuck Walton, who was here years ago, some will remember Chuck, who went out to the Midwest to be a pastor from here. He went to Iowa, where he pastored a, a small church in uh, dairy farm country. I th- he told me that almost all of his uh, uh, parishioners were farmers. Their evening service was at 4 o'clock. Guess why? Farmers have to milk cows. And uh, so the farmers could get home and milk after the afternoon, late afternoon service. But uh, I know Chuck told me one time of a, of a steadfast faithful farmer in that congregation who liked to name his cows, as I guess many farmers do. And cows, of course, are all female if they're being milked. And, uh, and this guy liked biblical names, whether they were male or female. And he actually had, among his cows, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. <laughs> and I think some other pretty exotic Bible names. Well, we're not talking about cows, of course, here. We're talking about friends who got up and responded as faithful people when they heard the tragedy of their good man, Job, who was one like them, you would think. Maybe these were prosperous landholders themselves who knew Job, and they got together and said, we have to go help Job. And they went and came, and they were shocked when they saw him, even from a distance. It's implied maybe he probably hadn't been eating much, and he had dirt on him and ashes and skin disease and everything else. He must have looked terrible. But how great it is to have friends. I was made to think about the New Testament scene in Mark chapter 2 when a paralyzed man who could do almost nothing for himself had four steadfast friends. You remember them, don't you? Taking him up to the roof and vandalizing somebody's roof, not even caring to know they'd have to pay to fix that roof. They wanted to get this man into the presence of Jesus. Would that we all have bold friends who would come to us when we need them. They came, as was the custom in that part of the Middle East. They 
kept silence. It says seven days. It's hard to imagine just sitting around for seven days not saying anything, but this was the custom. Uh, like we would talk about a wake today when you come to grieve. Of course, in our society, we, if we have 15 minutes to dash in, say sorry for your loss, sign the book, and go. That's our idea of bringing comfort. But seven days they sat with Job, and no one spoke. You know, in my early years as a pastor, I first was pastor of a church when I was 25 and right out of seminary. I, I know I was intimidated by one particular thing, and that was, what am I supposed to do or say when I'm called to a house where there's been a death or a tragedy? And I had these right away in my ministry. I had a, my second funeral I ever had was for a suicide. And, uh, you know, what do I say? And I I felt so inadequate. I felt like, well, I was, they, they were going to expect me, the all-wise pastor, to come and be able to explain the, the depths of issues of suffering and, you know, why do these tragedies happen? And I knew that I couldn't explain them. But I learned, and it didn't take me too long to learn this, that the important thing was not that I could explain. The important thing was that I was there and that I prayed and that I read the promises of God with them, and I helped them wrestle through uh, practical arrangements that had to be made, and I even wept with them. That's what they wanted, and that's what they needed. And I want to remind you that you don't have to be a seminary graduate to be there for people who are in your life. That's what they need from you. That doesn't take a theological diploma to come and expound the great issues. It means simply loving them and caring for them and being present. Romans 12:15 urges believers to weep with those who weep. That's an eloquence that goes beyond the words that you might have to say. Well, at first, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar did bring some consolation just by being there, I'm sure, just looking at them, greeting them, maybe a nod. They didn't have to talk to comfort Job by their presence. But it was when they started to talk that they got in trouble, as we're going to see these next chapters coming on. And when they started to offer arguments and accusations and say, Job, we've got the answer for you. But it wasn't the answer, and it only made things worse. Pretty soon, as we go along in this book, you're going to feel like these guys are three vultures sitting on a tree branch waiting to peck at Job's already sore skin. And that's what they do. Proverbs 18 talks about a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He chose three, not with these names, but with the names Peter, James, and John. And he said, please, come apart with me, be with me. This was the man. Yes, Jesus, of course, was the Son of God. But the man, Jesus, said, friends, you are my dearest companions. Be with me. I need your presence with me while I go over there and pray to the Father. You know what they did? Went to sleep. They couldn't even stay awake a little while. They were not friends at that point who stuck closer than a brother, were they? Christians have the promise that the Holy Spirit of God, who is literally the presence of Christ, is with us always. When Jesus said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, we know He, the man visible on earth, isn't walking with us, but he's present in his Holy Spirit, always with his people. He is 
the friend who sticks, the friend who sticks closer than any brother. Well, secondly, it's hard for me to put a a, a neatly summarized point on what I want to say about chapter 3 here. I don't really have a point that's probably worded very well, but what we see in the comments I'm going to make about chapter 3 now is Job cursing. He is cursing. It says he did that, but not God. He didn't fall for Satan's wager that he would curse God. It's Job cursing the day he was born. He directed his anger not at God, but really at himself and his entire life on the earth. Look at verse 3. He says, let the day perish on which I was born. Verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim that day. Verse 6, let this day not rejoice among days of the year. You know, all of us who are past middle age make the grim comment when a birthday comes around and we'll say something like, well, I don't really want to see a birthday anymore. I don't like birthdays now, but I think most people have some kind of affection for their own birthday and look forward a little bit to the day coming up on the calendar. And we're not given Job's actual birthday, but let's say it was May 15th, just for theoretical purposes. Job is saying, let me find every calendar in the land so I can tear off the page with May 15th on it, or blot it out, or cut it out with scissors. I would make it cease to exist if I could. And then I would never have had to be born. That day did not shut the door of my mother's womb, is the way he expressed it. Wow. You've got to be pretty low when you don't even want to have been born. Some people would look at and try to analyze Job here, psychoanalyze him and say, why, the man's suicidal. You could say that, I think, but the interesting thing is he never makes a move in that direction. There's no, no thought here that he was going to attempt suicide or did but just that he looks at his life as a complete, absolute waste. And he's speaking to anyone who wants to hear him say that it is a waste. There's a passage in Psalm 39 where David obviously had some spiritual issue in mind that he was thought he probably should talk to God about this, but then he thought, no, I won't. I won't because I might sin with my mouth, he says, Psalm 39, 2 and 3. I won't sin with my mouth by bringing that up. But, but as, he, as he then does not speak, here's what he says. My distress grew worse. My heart grew hot within me. And as I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. You have almost the sense of something volcanic exploding out of the psalmist. And he said, I just couldn't keep it in any longer. I had to speak. I had to say this. That's what we've got with Job a volcanic blast of what had been churning and going on inside the man that he simply had to let go of it somehow. And while he didn't understand that, there is a positive sense in which beginning to speak this way was at least the first step. It didn't look like a positive step, but it really was a first step in getting out of him some things that needed to be said by way of confession so God could begin to to heal and deal with him. This isn't exactly a pretty illustration, and maybe you'll fault me for using it, but I've observed from years of daily life on this particular property as I come and go from the church office all the time, something about the office building that's built immediately south 
of our church here just south of us, the other side of our south parking lot. And actually, that's the second building that's been on that site, in my knowledge. But both of them, I know this fact to be true, the, the buildings are not hooked up to the municipal sewer, nor are they a, a building that has a septic system. So what in the world do you do? Well, you have a tank in the ground. And anyone who comes and goes from our building during the week, sooner or later, sees a tank truck pull in the front parking lot and busily pump out the holding tank of the sewer uh, of that building. That's the only way it's serviced. A honey wagon. Anybody know what a honey wagon is? Doesn't have any honey in it, I'll tell you that right now. Its contents are nothing very sweet. But I see what was going on with Job here, as you could say it, backing up of the tank truck and pumping out the sewage of suffering that had just groaningly bubbled its way through his whole life. Job was not blaming God. He was really, it says he spoke this aloud. He said this. It isn't a prayer exactly. He doesn't address it to God. But he almost could be talking to himself, blaming himself for being alive. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book about his grief when his wife Joy died of cancer. And he said, talking about his relationship with God as he was working through these hard things, he said, it's not as though I am in danger of not believing in God. The real danger is in coming to believe dreadful things about God, that I would start blaming God for my suffering, in other words. Job still isn't doing that. That's a a hopeful thing to see here. And you might ask yourself, well, how can a genuine believer go through this kind of blank despair that he could curse the day of his birth? Well, Job was basically lost in terms of any kind of moral or spiritual compass bearings right here. So overcome by disorientation of everything he had known before that he just didn't know where to turn or what to say. And all he could say was, it's a miserable thing to be alive. It's a miserable thing to be me. And he needed this confession of helplessness. There's a positive thing, you see, in confessing your helplessness especially in the hearing of a God who is the provider of all help. It's a place to begin. When God hears you say, I'm helpless, I'm confused, I don't even want to live, you're in a better place than if you're harboring a lot of pride and accusation and blaming and throwing that at the throne of the Almighty. Job said, here my groans pour out like water. It was good for God to hear his groans. In fact, this may have been the best possible kind of prayer that he could have prayed at that time. You know, if the best way you know how to pray is just sort of a helpless wail, help God, I don't know what to do. There seems to be nothing meaningful in front of me. There's nothing good or useful for me to take hold of. I I, I don't feel your presence. I'm, I'm not encouraged by your word. Help me, God! If you have to wail a prayer like that, my advice to you is wail away. 
you're in good company with people like Job, with people like William Cooper, with the psalmist on many occasions. I'm thinking of Romans 8.26, where we read, The Spirit of Christ helps us in our weakness, for we do not even know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Well, this chapter's about the raw stuff of life, and it may well be that most of you say, boy, I've never been in that kind of a deep situation, and I hope I never am. But I would dare say there's somebody listening to me either right now or will hear this message at some point on CD recording or website or something who says, boy, oh boy, do I know what that feels like. Been there. Been through that. Job's situation was so completely crushed that death could actually seem preferable. Notice a key word that's here. The word is rest or unrest. In in verse 13 and 17 and 26, he says, I'm not at ease. I'm not quiet. I have no rest. Job couldn't sing. He was as much as saying, I I can't sing it as well with my soul because it's not right now. I have no rest. I'd be at rest if the universe seemed to be operating according to the rules I thought it operated on, that a good and blameless man who comes to God regularly in prayer gets rewarded and an evil man gets punished, but it doesn't seem like the universe is working that way anymore. The universe has gone haywire. How can I have rest? Well, folks, for at least a beginning, we can glimpse germs of the gospel in chapter 3 of Job, with all this misery and all this confusion, for he has not stopped looking for God, and he has not started blaming God. And those are two things very much in his favor. God can sense his hopelessness and his confusion, and God is going to work. Because of this, Job's hour of mournful loneliness experience in the dark here definitely anticipates another biblical hour, hundreds of years to come yet, when someone was abandoned in the dark, when another man who was called blameless was enveloped in darkness and his mind was tortured and his body was tortured, and out of his mouth came the words, My God, why have you forsaken me. And like Job, this man Jesus did not get an immediate answer to that cry. And yet in short time, God did answer that cry of his son. He who had to turn his face of blessing away from Jesus turned back and within two days turned to him with power and acceptance as he rose his son from the grave turned his beaming face of approval on his son and said, this is my beloved son. Well done, son. The fact that Jesus found that answer from his father encourages us that we with our wails in dark times of confusion and hurt and real difficulty can look to Jesus who endured that unique darkness on the cross 
so he could become Job's Savior and our Savior too. Thanks be to God. Father, I think we must thank you for letting someone be and feel so lost as Job did, even though we know that in saying that, it it was no small thing for him to experience. But thank you especially for the amazing, stunning picture of the other blameless man, Jesus, lost in the dark, abandoned very briefly to be our sin-bearer so you could show favor to him and to us and bring us eternal salvation. God, I'm sure right now there's somebody who isn't exactly at rest. May they, in confessing their own helplessness to you, begin to find their way back by the power of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.